only the best, my jazz friends. In celebration of Black History Month, a four-hour special in a class all by itself, the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad, in celebrating a movement, a four-hour special playing tribute and honor to some extraordinary history makers, all are one of a kind. Pass the information, extend the knowledge. Pass the information, extend the knowledge. John Coltrane said, I love Supreme. I interpret that to all living Donnie Hathaway said, the ghetto. Woody Shaw said, why? John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Ask the information, extend the knowledge. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. Stevie Wonder said, in a vision, interpretation, watch. Aretha Franklin said, respect. Barry White said, love. Nina Simone said, to be young, gifted, and James Brown said, stay in school. Panama Emily said, sometimes we're not prepared for adversity. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Oliver Nelson said, stolen moments. Isley Brothers said, harvest for the world. I know there can be Rodney Franklin says you'll never know. Hubert Law said, say it with silence. Nancy Wilson said, guess who I saw today? Earth, wind, and fire said, keep your head to the sky. I know there is a force far wiser than I. The creator has a master plan. The pen of Leon Thomas and Pharaoh Sanders. Alex Haley said, Roots. Gerald Wilson said, You better believe it. Charlie Parker said, Now is the time. Wake up! Billy Holiday said, God bless the child. LTD said, Love, togetherness, and devotion. Bobby Bland said, as soon as the weather breaks, Sam Cook said, you send me. Raw Air said, believe in yourself. Gil Scott Heron said, winter in America. 
Hugh Masekela said, grazing in the grass. Richard Pryor said, how long? How long will it take for us to become one? How long will it take for us to become unified? How long will it take us to understand the meaning of understanding? How long will it take us to do what we have to do that is most important? How long will it take our priorities to oversee? How long is how long it will take us? We must see beyond the obvious. Focusing and pursuing. Wake up, see beyond the earth. Remember the past so you can deal with the future. Malcolm X, Mohammed. Marcus Marcus Rick Holmes Miriam Makiba Richard Pryor Adam Clayton Powell Martin Luther King Elijah Muhammad. Elijah. W.B. Du Bois. Frederick Douglass. Matt Turner. Tom Bradley. Shirley Chisholm. Ron Dullums. Andrew Young. Anwar Sadat. Clara Holmes. George. Washington Carter Caesar Chavez Sidney Fortier Count Basin Duke Bill Rodney, Eric Dunn, Rasak Rosen, Paul Robin, Stevie Wonder, Minnie Ripperton, Louis Armstrong, people and more have made strong contributions to mankind because of their compassion and humanitarianism dealing with their self-identification 
based around love and unity, these men are now have made the great contributions to mankind. We are to pass it on to the next generation. We shall never forget. Remember to remember to never forget. How long? How long? How long? How long? How long? How long? How long will it take? How long will it take? How long will it take, man? us to come together and take us as long as you make it. May I prolong your life, life for you to live and to give, the generation to do, focus. time, the Academy bestows an honorary award on a member of the film industry, sometimes for a body of work, sometimes for work done to better the industry, sometimes for the influence created among other filmmakers around the world. This year, they honor a man who qualifies in all three areas and who is also unique in the history of film. They call him Sidney Poitier. Before Sydney, African-American actors had to take supporting roles in major studio films that were easy to cut out in certain parts of the country. But you couldn't cut Sidney Poitier out of a Sidney Poitier picture. He was the reason a movie got made, the first solo above the title African-American movie star. He was unique. Sidney Poitier.
I arrived in Hollywood at the age of 22 in a time different than today's. A time in which the odds against my standing here tonight, 53 years later, would not have fallen in my favor. Back then, no route had been established for where I was hoping to go. No pathway left in evidence for me to trace. No custom for me to follow. Yet here I am this evening at the end of a journey that in 1949 would have been considered almost impossible and in fact might never have been set in motion were there not an untold number of courageous, unselfish choices made by a handful of visionary American filmmakers, directors, writers, and producers each with a strong sense of citizenship responsibility to the times in which they lived, each unafraid to permit their art to reflect their views and values, ethical and moral, and moreover, acknowledge them as their own. They knew the odds that stood against them and their efforts were overwhelming and likely could have proven too high to overcome. Still, those filmmakers persevered, speaking through their art to the best in all of us, and I benefited from their effort. The industry benefited from their effort. America benefited from their effort. And in ways large and small, the world has also benefited from their effort. Therefore, with respect, I share this great honor with the late Joe Mankiewicz, the late Richard Brooks, the late Ralph Nelson, the late Daryl Zanuck, the late Stanley Kramer, the Mirish brothers, especially Walter, whose friendship lies at the very heart of this moment. Guy Green, Norman Jewison, and all others who have had a hand in altering the odds for me and for others. Without them, this most memorable moment would not have come to pass, and the many excellent young actors who have followed in admirable fashion might not have come, as they have, to enrich the tradition of American filmmaking as they have. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, 
on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. My love, my love and my thanks to my wonderful, wonderful wife, my children, my grandchildren, my agent and friend, Martin Baum, and finally, finally to those audience members around the world who have placed their trust in my judgment as an actor and filmmaker, I thank each of you for your support through the years. Thank you. biggest ovation anyone has received here in this opening session of the Democratic Convention, the first time the convention has really come alive on this first night, from Barbara Jordan, Congresswoman from Texas. Houston, Texas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. It was 144 years ago that members of the Democratic Party first met in convention to select a presidential candidate. 
Since that time, Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft a party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. passed since 1832, and during that time it would have been most unusual for any national political party to ask a Barbara Jordan to deliver a keynote address. But tonight, here I am. And I feel, I feel that notwithstanding the past, that my presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. Now, now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions. But I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more, deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. Throughout, throughout our history, when people have looked for new ways to solve their problems and to uphold the principles of this nation, 
Many times they have turned to political parties. They have often turned to the Democratic Party. What is it? What is it about the Democratic Party that makes it the instrument the people use when they search for ways to shape their future? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies in our concept of governing. Our concept of governing is derived from our view of people. It is a concept deeply rooted in a set of beliefs firmly etched in the national conscience of all of us. Now, what are these beliefs? First, we believe in equality for all and privileges for none. is a belief this is a belief that each american regardless of background has equal standing in the public forum all of us because because we believe this idea so firmly we are an inclusive rather than an exclusive party let everybody come no accident that most of those immigrating to America in the 19th century identified with the Democratic Party. We are a heterogeneous party made up of Americans of diverse backgrounds. We believe that the people are the source of all governmental power, that the authority of the people is to be extended, not restricted. This can be accomplished only by providing each citizen with every opportunity to participate in the management of the government. They must have that. We believe. We believe that the government which represents the authority of all the people, not just one interest group but all the people, has an obligation to actively, underscore actively, seek to remove those obstacles which would block individual achievement, obstacles emanating from race, sex, economic condition. The government must remove them, seek to remove them. We. We are a party. We are a party of innovation. We do not reject our traditions, but we are willing to adapt to changing circumstances when change we must. We are willing to suffer the discomfort of change in order to achieve a better future. We have a positive vision of the future founded on the belief that the gap between the promise and reality of America 
can one day be finally closed. We believe that. This, my friends, is the bedrock of our concept of governing. This is a part of the reason why Americans have turned to the Democratic Party. These are the foundations upon which a national community can be built. Let all understand that these guiding principles cannot be discarded for short-term political gains. They represent what this country is all about. They are indigenous to the American idea, and these are principles which are not negotiable.
my friends who are apologizing for not insisting upon this right where can the black man look in this country for the assertion of his right if he may not look to the massachusetts anti-slavery society where under the whole heavens can he look for sympathy in asserting this right if he may not look to this platform have you lifted us up to a certain height to see that we are men and then are any disposed to leave us there without seeing that we are put in possession of all our rights? We look naturally to this platform for the assertion of all our rights, and for this one especially. I understand the anti-slavery societies of this country to be based on two principles. First, the freedom of the blacks of this country. And second, the elevation of them. Let me not be misunderstood here. I am not asking for sympathy at the hands of abolitionists, sympathy at the hands of any. I think the American people are disposed often to be generous rather than just. I look over this country at the present time and I see educational societies, sanitary commissions, Freedmen's associations and the like, all very good. But in regard to the people of color in this land, there has always been more that is benevolent, I perceive, than just manifested toward us. What I ask for the black man is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. 
The American people have always been anxious to know what they shall do with us. Everybody has asked the question and learned to ask it early of the abolitionist. What shall we do with the black man? I have had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the apple will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm-eaten at the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, then let them fall. I'm not for tying or fastening them on the tree in any way except by nature's plan. And if they will not stay there, then let them fall. If the black man cannot stand on his own legs, then let him fall also. All I ask is, give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. If you see him on his way to school, let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going to the dinner table at a hotel, then let him go. If you see him going to the ballot box, then let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going into a workshop, just let him alone. Your interference is doing him a positive injury. Let him fall if he cannot stand alone. If the black man cannot live by the line of eternal justice, the fault will not be yours. It will be his who made the black man and established that line for his government. Let him live or die by that. If you will only untie his hands and give him a chance, He will work as readily for himself as the white man. Now a great many delusions have been swept away by this war. One was that the black man would not work. He has proved his ability to work. Another was that the black man would not fight. That he possessed only the most cheapest attributes of humanity. Was a perfect lamb or an Uncle Tom disposed to take off his coat whenever required, fold his hands and be whipped by anybody who wanted to whip him. But this war, this war has proved that there is a great deal of human nature in that black man. And that yes, he will fight. through them, where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, 
and January 6th, 2021. On that day, I was not only vice president-elect, I was also a United States senator. And I was here at the Capitol that morning at a classified hearing with fellow members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Hours later, the gates of the Capitol were breached. I had left, but my thoughts immediately turned not only to my colleagues, but to my staff, who had been forced to seek refuge in our office, converting filing cabinets into barricades. What the extremists who roamed these halls targeted was not only the lives of elected leaders. What they sought to degrade and destroy was not only a building, hallowed as it is. What they were assaulting were the institutions, the values, the ideals that generations of Americans have marched, picketed, and shed blood to establish and defend. On January 6th, we all saw what our nation would look like if the forces who seek to dismantle our democracy are successful. The lawlessness, the violence, the chaos. What was at stake then and now is the right to have our future decided the way the Constitution prescribes it by we, the people, all the people. We cannot let our future be decided by those bent on silencing our voices, overturning our votes, and peddling lies and misinformation by some radical faction that may be newly resurgent, but whose roots run old and deep. When I meet with young people, they often ask about the state of our democracy, about January 6th. And what I tell them is January 6th reflects the dual nature of democracy its fragility and its strength. You see, the strength of democracy is the rule of law. The strength of democracy is the principle that everyone should be treated equally, that elections should be free and fair, that corruption should be given no quarter. The strength of democracy is that it empowers the people. And the fragility of democracy is this, that if we are not vigilant, if we do not defend it, democracy simply will not stand. It will falter and fail. The violent assault that took place here, the very fact of how close we came to an election overturned. That reflects 
the fragility of democracy. Yet, the resolve I saw in our elected leaders when I returned to the Senate chamber that night, their resolve not to yield, but to certify the election, their loyalty not to party or person, but to the Constitution of the United States, that reflects its strength. And so, of course, does the heroism of the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the National Guard, and other law enforcement officers who answered the call that day, including those who later succumbed to wounds, both visible and invisible. Our thoughts are with all of the families who have lost a loved one. You know, I wonder, how will January 6th come to be remembered in the years ahead? Will it be remembered as a moment that accelerated the unraveling of the oldest, greatest democracy in the world? Or a moment when we decided to secure and strengthen our democracy for generations to come. The American spirit is being tested. The answer to whether we will meet that test resides where it always has resided in our country, with you, the people. And the work ahead will not be easy. Here in this very building, a decision will be made about whether we uphold the right to vote and ensure free and fair elections. Let's be clear, we must pass the voting rights bills that are now before the Senate. And the American people must also do something more. We cannot sit on the sidelines. We must unite in defense of our democracy in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our prosperity and posterity. That is the preamble of the Constitution that President Biden and I swore an oath to uphold and defend. And that is the enduring promise of the United States of America. My fellow Americans, it is my honor to introduce a public servant with the character and fortitude to meet this moment. A leader whose life's work has been moving our nation toward that more perfect union. President Joe Biden. In a class all by itself, the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad, together we're celebrating those that was brought to this country against their will. Black people, this is a four-hour special about black history, America's history. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this wonderful, one-of-a-kind program.
Amen. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. As many of you know, uh, last March, when it was announced that I was no longer in the Black Muslim Movement, it was pointed out that it was my intention to work among the 22 million non-Muslim Afro-Americans and to try and form some type of organization or create a situation where the young people, our young people, the students and others, could study the problems of our people for a period of time and then come up with a new analysis and give us some new ideas and some new suggestions as to how to approach a problem that too many other people had been playing around with for too long. And that we would have some kind of meeting and determine at a later date whether to form a black nationalist party or a black nationalist army. There have been many of our people across the country from all walks of life who have taken it upon themselves to try and pool their ideas and to come up with some kind of solution to the problem that confronts all of our people. And tonight we are here to try and get an understanding of what it is they've come up with. Also, recently, when I was blessed to make a trip or a pilgrimage, a religious pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca where I met many people from all over the world plus spent many weeks in Africa trying to broaden my own scope and get an open, more of an open mind to look at the problem as it actually is. One of the things that I realized, and I realized this even before going over there, was that the, our African brothers have gained their independence faster than you and I here in America have. They've also gained recognition and respect as human beings much faster than you and I. Just 10 years ago on the African continent, our people were colonized. They were suffering all forms of colonization, oppression, exploitation, degradation, humiliation, discrimination, and every other kind of Asian. And in uh, a short time, they have gained more independence, more recognition, more respect as human beings than you and I have. And you and I live in a country which is supposed to be the citadel of education, freedom, justice, democracy, and all of those other pretty sounding words. So it was our intention to try and find out what was our African brothers doing to get results so that you and I could study what they had done and perhaps gain from that study or benefit from their experiences. And, and my traveling over there was designed to help to find out how. One of the first things that the independent African nations did was to form an organization called the Organization of African Unity. The purpose of our organization of Afro-American Unity, which has the same aim and objective, to fight whoever gets in our way.
bring about the complete independence of people of African descent here in the Western Hemisphere and first here in the United States and bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. That's our motto. The purpose of our organization is to start right here in Harlem, which has the largest concentration of people of African descent that exists anywhere on this earth. There are more Africans here in Harlem than exist in any city on the African continent, because that's what you and I are, Africans. The Charter of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights are the principles in which we believe and that th these documents, if put into practice, represent the essence of mankind's hopes and, uh, and good intentions, desirous that all Afro-American people and organizations should henceforth unite so that the welfare and well-being of our people will be assured we are resolved to reinforce the common bond of purpose between our people by submerging all of our differences and establishing non-sectarian constructive programs for human rights. We hereby present this charter, number one, the establishment. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom, in the Irish neighborhood, or the Jewish neighborhood, or the Italian neighborhood, we need, to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get their allies... It's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf right into the arms of the fox, looking for some kind of help. That's a drag. Number two, Self-defense. Since self-preservation is the first law of nature, we assert the Afro-Americans' right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And, as Americans, we will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. The history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. I think what you're trying to ask is, uh, why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with uh, 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 black culture? I think that's what you're asking. It's, it's, I have no choice over it in the first place. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. I mean, and I mean that in every, every sense, uh, outside and inside. And to me, we have a culture 
that uh, is surpassed by, 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 by no other civilization, but we don't know anything about it. So again, I think I've said this before in the same interview, I think uh, at some time before, my, my job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. When I'm finished working, as tired as I am, and my work completely takes all my energy, unfortunately. But when there are kids who come backstage afterwards, who want to talk or who are moved to the point, sometimes they're moved to tears, I want to know more about it, and they shake my hand, and they kiss me, and they want to talk about their problems. I find the time to do so as much as I can. Uh, um, I discourage breakfasts and speeches because I'm not, I don't make speeches, but I will go out of my way in spite of the fact that I'm too tired to do it, to talk to them at least for five minutes or so, to, to, to sock to them the same message that I just finished doing on stage and perhaps to hear some of their grievances or just to make them feel that they are not alone. Because uh, when, when you have a few colored kids in a huge white college, any way you cut it, they are alienated and they feel it. So when I come, I feel a responsibility. They're so glad to see me because I represent something to them. And I can't give them enough, you know. I, I, they need me. They need me. And when, I, when I'm needed, I, I, I have to give. I, I, I curse myself afterwards for having no voice, usually, and being so exhausted that I can't do anything for myself. But when they need me, they need me for, and the most important thing is, they are our future. It's an, it's an investment, as far as I am concerned. When I invest time in young people from colleges, I know that I'm going to get that bread back. You know, bread casts upon the water comes back. Because when I see them doing their thing one day and I'm too old to do anything but sit and look at them, I'm going to say, well, I was part of that. I never intend for my children to look at me and be ashamed and say, Mama, why didn't you do something? I will have done mine. Pathways of my and so every time I talk to them, it's an investment to me. Everybody thinks we're all who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply calls me where I hang on.
On January 25, 1972, Representative Shirley Chisholm of New York City announced her candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1972. In 1968, Representative Chisholm became the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. Congress. Up next, we bring you the 14-minute announcement courtesy of the New York City Municipal Archives. today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America.
I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. <laughs> Fellow Americans, we have looked in vain to the Nixon administration for the courage, the spirit, the character, and the words to lift us, to bring out the best in us, to rekindle in each of us our faith in the American dream. Yet all that we have received in return is just another smooth exercise in political manipulation, deceit and deception, callousness and indifference to our individual problems, and the disgusting playing of divisive politics, pitting the young against the old, labor against management, north against south, black against white. The abiding concern of this administration has been one of political expediency rather than the needs of man's nature. The president has broken his promises to us and has therefore lost his claim to our trust and confidence in him. I cannot believe, I cannot believe that this administration would have ever been elected four years ago if we had known then what we know today, but we are entering, we are entering a new era in which we must, as Americans, demand stature and size in our national leadership. Leadership, leadership which is fresh, leadership which is open, and leadership which is receptive to the problems of all Americans. faith in the American people. I believe that we are smart enough to correct our mistakes. I believe we are intelligent enough to recognize the talent, energy, and dedication which all Americans, including women and minorities, have to offer. I know from my travels to the cities and small towns of America that we have a vast potential which can and must be put to constructive use in getting this great nation together. I know that millions of Americans from all walks of life agree with me that leadership does not mean putting the air to the ground to follow public opinion, but to have the vision of what is necessary and the courage to make it possible. <laughs> Americans all over are demanding a new sensibility, a new philosophy of government from Washington. 
Instead of sending spies to snoop on participants at Earth Day, I would welcome the efforts of concerned citizens of all ages to stop the abuse of our environment. Instead of watching a football game on television while young people beg for the attention of their president concerning our actions abroad, I would encourage them to speak out, organize for peaceful change, and vote in November. Instead of blocking efforts to control the huge amounts of money given political candidates by the rich and the powerful, I would provide certain limits on such amounts and encourage all the people of this nation to contribute small sums to the candidates of their choice. Instead of calculating the political costs of this or that policy and of weighing favors of this or that group, depending on whether that group voted for me in 1968, I would remind all Americans at this hour of the words of Abraham Lincoln, a house divided cannot stand. all fellow countrymen, one day confronting the judgment of history in our country. We are all God's children, and the will of each of us is as precious as the will of the most powerful general or corporate millionaire. And my presence before you now symbolizes a new era in American political history. I have always earnestly believed in the great potential of America. Our constitutional democracy will soon celebrate its 200th anniversary. Effective testimony to the longevity of our cherished constitution and its unique Bill of Rights, which continues to give to the world an inspirational message of freedom and liberty. We Americans are felt in remedying our ills. that in 1972, the great majority of Americans will continue to harbor such narrow and petty prejudices. I am convinced that the American people are in a mood to discard the politics and the political personalities of the past. I believe that they will show in 1972 and thereafter that they intend to make independent judgments on the merits of a particular candidate based on that candidate's intelligence, character, physical ability, competence, integrity, and honesty. It is, it is, I feel, the duty of responsible leaders in this country to encourage and maximize, not to dismiss or minimize such judgment. Our will, our will can create a new America in 1972, one where there is freedom from violence and war at home and abroad, where there is freedom from poverty and discrimination, where there exists at least a feeling that we are making progress and ensuring for everyone medical care, employment, and decent housing, where we more decisively clean up our streets, our water, and our air, where we work together, black and white, to rebuild our neighborhoods, and to make our cities quiet, attractive, and efficient. 
and fundamentally where we live in the confidence that every man and every woman in America has at long last the opportunity to become all that he was created of being, such as is his ability. In conclusion, all of you who share this vision, from New York to California, from Wisconsin to Florida, our brothers and sisters on the road to national unity and a new America. Those of you who were locked outside of the convention hall in 1968, those of you who can now vote for the first time, those of you who agree with me that the institutions of this country belong to all of the people who inhabit it, those of you who have been neglected, left out, ignored, forgotten or shunned aside for whatever reason. Give me your help at this hour. Join me in an effort to reshape our society and regain control of our destiny as we go down the Chisholm Trail for 1970. Do I recommend a trend for more women, and specifically black women, to enter into politics? Elected office. Elected office. Yes, I definitely uh, am feeling and recognizing that as a result of over 20 years in political life, only emerging eight years ago publicly, that there is a great need for more women in the political arena. I happen to believe that there are certain aspects of legislation that probably would be given much more attention if we had more women's voices in the halls of the legislatures on the city, state, and national level. And I will, legislation that pertains to daycare centers, education, social services, mental services, the kind of legislation that has to do with the conservation and preservation of the most important resources that any nation has, and that is its human resources. Candidacy will hurt the presidential candidacy of Mayor Lindsay. Well, Mayor Lindsay will be getting votes from the same area that I anticipate getting votes. And I dare say that my candidacy might not only hurt Mayor Lindsay, it might hurt a few others who have the same political. and dimes close to $44,000 from the American people. I want to say that in terms of my projection of $300,000 which was made earlier, that the benefits that are being planned and will be conducted in February, March, and April will net me, I'm quite sure, way above that amount. So I am willing to be optimistic now that I've made my announcement today to be able to get some sizable contributions. May I say that just this past week, I received two contributions from individuals in America, two contributions of $5,000 each. Uh, that is very encouraging. Yes. 
I can't hear you. I just want to say this, and it's very important for all Americans to recognize. The United States Constitution stipulates that anyone that is 35 years of age or over and is a natural born citizen can run for the presidency. All of us meet that criteria, the people will make a decision. Dr. Martin Luther King, they are. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note 
insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment, this sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred.
We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. 
I say to you today, my friend, So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character i have a dream today i have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together this is our hope this is a faith that I go back to the south with with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee i sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrims pride from every mountainside let freedom ring and if america is to be a great nation this must become true and so let freedom ring 
From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom reign. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Yes, indeed, my jazz brothers and sisters, in a class all by itself, it is the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad, celebrating those who could not vote in this country, black people. A four-hour special about black history and American history. So kick back, relax, and continue to enjoy this one-of-a-kind program.
You may remember reading in your Jet Johnson publications. A whole lot of stations didn't want to play that particular recording. We're a winner. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, I would say the way I'm sure most of you would say, we don't give a damn, we're a winner anyway. Right on? Yeah, I got a little strength out there tonight. <laughs> Putting fire on us. Out of sight. It's all right now. We have just another version that we'd like to lay to you about here. Believing very strongly in the equality and freedom for all, and especially we people who are darker than blue. We'd like to just lay another version to you. Trying not to offend anyone, but basically telling it like it is. We're a winner, and never let anybody say, boy, you can't make it, cause a feeble mind is in your way. No more tears do we cry. The black boy done dried his eyes. And they're moving on up, moving on up. Lord have mercy, we're moving on up now. Moving on up. There'll be no more Uncle Tom. At last that blessed day has come. And we're a winner. And everybody knows it too. We just keep on pushing. Like Martin Luther told you to. And I don't mind leaving here to show the world we have no fear because we're moving on up, moving on up. Lord have mercy, we're moving on up, we're moving on up. So people get ready. I've got good news for you. How we got over like we're all supposed to do. Let us all say amen. And together we clap our hands. Cause we're moving on up, moving on up. Lord have mercy, we're moving on up now, moving on up. Continue to be a winner, all of you. say come true we're just good for nothing they all figure a boy's grown up shiftless jigger now we can't hardly stand for that or is that really where it's at we people who are darker than blue this ain't no time for segregating I'm talking about brown and yellow too Yellow girl, can't you tell? You're just the surface of our dark deep well. If your man could really see, you'd know your color, same as me. 
pardon me, brother, as you stand in your glory. I know you won't mind if I tell the whole story. Mr. Henry Gibson. sign should we commit our own genocide before we check out our mind I know we've all got problems that's why I'm here to say keep peace with me and I with you let me love in my own way Let us hang around this town 
and let what others say come true. We're just good for nothing, they all figure. A grown-up jigger. <laughs> wow. Now we can't hardly stand for that. Or is that really where it's at? Pardon me, brother, as you stand in your glory. I know you won't mind if I tell the whole story. Pardon me, brother, I know we've come a long, long way. But let us not be so satisfied For tomorrow For tomorrow Can be an even brighter day <laughs> I think uh, I think he's probably taking the last count at the moment. I'll I'll do my best to wake him you up. Sleep. For you sleep. That's all I'm gonna do. That's all he wants to do when he retires. Well, when I retire from boxing, I really don't know. I want to say something right here. You all might. This might make you all think. Life is not really long. Let's say the average person, 30 years old. If you're 30 years old, you are not but about seven years old. How can I prove it? Add up all the seven, eight, nine hours you slept for 30 years. Out of 30 years, out of all the nights, last night when you went to bed and woke up this morning, you don't remember a thing. You've been unconscious for about eight years. If you're 30 years old, you slept about eight years. Okay. How much traveling have you done in 30 years? From the television station to home, to another country, to another city, to school, to church. You've probably traveled two years your life or spent just getting back and forth to where you're going. So there's eight years of sleeping, two years of traveling, there's 30 years out of your life before you accomplish anything. How long do you sit in school? In America, we stay in school from the 12th grade to, from the first grade to 12th grade. Same here? Yeah, virtually. Six hours a day? Yeah. Six hours a day for 12 years, break it down, you sat in a classroom for three years without leaving. Okay, two years of traveling, eight years of sleeping, three years of school. How many movies have you went to? How many wrestling matches? How much entertainment? How many movie theaters, live plays, baseball games? Probably two years of entertainment. So by the time a man, you older people know him, bear with us, I'm saying, by the time you have children, by the time you have uh, made away for your children, by the time you've paid for your home, you're pushing 60 years old. So life is real short. So you add up all your traveling, add up all your sleeping, add up all your school, add up all your entertainment, you've probably been half your life doing nothing. So what am I, I'll, I'm 35 years old, 30 more years I'll be 65. We don't have no more influence. We can't do nothing much at 65, your wife will tell you that. So what I'm saying, when you're 65, when you're 65, ain't too much more to do. So, did you know I'll be 65 in 30 more years? In those 30 years, I have to sleep nine years. I don't have 30 years of daylight. I have to travel back to America, take six, seven miles. All my traveling, probably four years of traveling in the next 30 years. About nine years of sleeping. 
television, movies, entertainment, about three years of entertainment. Out of 30 years, I might have about 16 years to be productive. So it's how we can all break individual lives down. What am I gonna do in the next 16 years? What's the best thing I can do? Get ready to meet God. Owning real estate, going in business, teaching boxers, that won't get me to heaven. How many here believe there's a supreme being, believe there's a God? How many believe there's some power that made the sun, the moon, the stars? How many believe that this stuff didn't just come out here, somebody wiser than us made it? How many believe there's a God? How many believe there's not a God? All right. Believe there's not a God. All right. If I told you, you who don't believe in God, if I told you that this glass sprang into existence, this glass made itself, no man made this glass, would you believe it? Would you believe I just told you this thing made itself? No, no. No. When I tell you, you wouldn't believe it, right? No, uh, that, that some, somebody's doubting it, yeah, so I'm, no, I'm giving I'm you the answer. That that's she what wouldn't believe it. If I turned on this television station, popped into existence, it just, no man made it. You said Muhammad Ali's crazy. All right. Well, if this glass can't make itself, if I told you those clothes you have on wove themselves, nobody created them, those clothes made themselves, you wouldn't believe it. But if your, if your clothes didn't make itself, if that glass couldn't make itself, if this building didn't make itself, then how did the moon get out there? How did the stars and Jupiter and Neptune and Mars and the sun, how did nature, how, how did all this come here if didn't know why is something planning to make it? So what I'm saying is, I believe that we're going to be judged. Should a man like Hitler kill all the Jews and get away with it? Somebody should punish him. Maybe he get it, don't get it now, he get it when he die. In hell for eternity. So what I'm going to do when I get out of boxing is to get myself ready to meet God because my plane might blow up. Don't planes blow up in this country sometimes and crash? Don't people die every day? Uh, not okay. every day. It's a scary thing to think that I'm going to hell to burn eternally forever. So what am I going to do? I'm taking such a, I'm explaining what you asked me a question. You asked me questions I can't just answer like that. When I get out of boxing or when I'm through, I'm going to do all I can to help people. That's why I'm here with Johnny Walker. Here's a poor man came all the way to America. Here's a bunch of boys need some money, and somebody is calling me to help them. God is watching me. God is God. Don't praise me because I beat Joe Frazier. God don't give nothing about Joe Frazier. God don't care nothing about England or America as far as your wealth is all his. He wants to know how do we treat each other, how do we help each other. So. I'm going to dedicate my life to using my name and popularity, helping charities, helping people, uniting people, bring people bumming each other because of religious beliefs. We need somebody in the world to help make peace. So when I die, if there's a heaven, I want to see it. Because we live how long? 80 years? The odds are everybody in this room, some of you are going to be dead 20 years from now. Some of you are going to be dead 50 years from now. Some are going to be dead 30, some are going to be dead 60, 70 years now. We are going to die soon. And if you live to be, say, 125 years old, which we don't do, right? Let's say we live to be 250, and you can have sex for 145 of those years. You're going to come to end after that. So we don't have it about 80 years on Earth. This is a test to see where will we spend our life in heaven and hell. This is not the life now. Your real self is inside you. Your body gets old. Some of you go to look at the fridge, look old. You don't have no teeth. 
Your hair is leaving you, your bodies get tired, but your soul and your spirit never die. That's going to live forever. So your body is just housing your soul and spirit. So God is testing us on how we treat each other, how we live, to see where our real home be in heaven. So this physical stuff don't last for so long. So my car, this building is going to be here when the man who built it dead. There have been many kings and queens of England. They're all dead. After this one is gone, another one will come. So we don't stay here. We're just trustees. We don't own nothing. Even your children are not yours, if you think I'm lying. Your wife is not yours. You die and come back a year later and go slip in your bedroom and see if your wife is by herself. See, you don't own your wife. You don't own your, I divorced my wife, you may have read about it, and my four children, they call another man daddy now. They don't see me no more. You don't own your children. You don't own your family. So what am I saying? The most important thing about life is what's going to happen when you die are you going to go to heaven or hell? And that's eternity. How long is eternity? Let's imagine. Take the Sahara Desert. There's a lot of sand on the Sahara Desert, right? Then take, imagine that one grain of sand represents a thousand years. And when you're in hell burning, when you die and go to hell, you're going to burn forever and ever and ever. No end. How long is that? Give you an idea how long eternity is. Take the Sahara Desert. And I told you to wait a thousand years. And every thousand years, I want you to pick up a grain of sand until the desert is empty. Okay, wait a thousand years, pick up the first grain. Wait another thousand years before you get the next grain. Keep that up until there's no more sand in the desert. Whew. You know how long it's just a... I mean, America's now but 200 years old. We got 800 more years to go before a thousand. So it just scares me to think that I'm going to die one day and go to hell. I'm on an airplane that might blow up. I'm always traveling. And to go to hell and God is going to judge my soul. The police, I might kill people. I might rob people. The authorities might not catch me. The FBI, Scotland Yard might not catch me. But when I die, somebody's watching me and keeping count. And I can't get away. And I'm going to burn forever and ever and ever. I'll go to heaven. So what am I going to do when I'm through fighting? I only have 16 years to be productive. Get myself ready to meet God and go to the best place. Don't that make sense? Thank you. He would come to the gym, and if say he didn't get a ride to the gym, he didn't have no car. He would run. He would run across the causeway. Muhammad Ali, one of my great heroes, had a great line in the 70s when he was asked, how many sit-ups do you do? He said, I don't count my sit-ups. I only start counting when it starts hurting. When I feel pain, that's when I start counting because that's when it really counts. That's what makes you a champion. Jerry, I'm the greatest fighter that ever stepped foot in the ring. Money will be lost that night. This will be the biggest upset in the century of all boxing. I think you're a big bag of wind. Damnedest showman that ever lived, and you ain't kidding anybody. The odds are seven to one. It's very big odds for a heavyweight championship fight. It has to be Liston. Liston is a much bigger puncher. While well, these big mouth people talking about I talk too much, well, I want all of them to be there, and I'm going to shut up all of his mouth. My name no more. You want to keep calling me a white man's name? I'm not white. Continues to scream at Terrell. He beat the hell out of those who didn't want to use his name. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. I'm just about broke. I'm not allowed to work here now in America. I'm going to fight 
not for me, but to uplift my little brothers who are sleeping in concrete floors today in America. They want to be famous. They are people. It's a wonderful group. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his eyes can't see. All of you chunks are going to bow when I whip him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. Bluffed him. I done everything. Beat him up basically for about five or six rounds. I thought it was easy. Then about the sixth round, he whispered in my ear after I'd hit him in the side. That all you got, George? I told you, all of my critics, that I was the greatest of all time. He was not courageous enough to take risks and accomplish nothing in life. certain fellas, I'm going to be champion one day, and when I'm champion, I'm going to come back and show you I'm wrong. Another said, guys, I'm going to be a great doctor one day, and I'm going to be a dentist, I'm going to be a great scientist, I'm going to be a president of the country. And But very few people actually are able to make good of the boats and come home and say, I told you. That's right, I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad, fast, fast, fast. Last night, I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are gonna bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Now, look, look up. This is a, this is a question we get asked all the time. I take inspiration and, and motivation from absolutely everything and anything. You know, people chasing their dream, putting their head down, working hard. For me, obviously, Muhammad Ali was probably my first combat uh, sports star that I that I looked up to. You know, I'd never seen anything like that, and I was fascinated by him and um, growing up. Uh, I cannot accept uh, a comparison like that. Muhammad Ali is a special man. Um, he done things that are unthinkable. Uh, he changed culture, period. So. Um, now, some of you might know I have a a. Uh a very unique connection with the champ. Uh, we all know the stats and we know the, the records inside the ring, but there's no doubt that he was a great boxer. He was the, the greatest of all time. Uh, 
but when we think about the legacy of Muhammad Ali, what he did in the ring is not what we think about. Uh, for, for nearly two years, I worked to transform myself into the man who changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and shook up the world. So I got to wear Muhammad Ali's uh, greatness. I got to study and feel and embody the soul of the man um, from the foundations of Islam and, and the strength of his Muslim faith in his life to the beautiful wake that he always leaves in his magnificent path. And what I learned about the word legacy is that it extends far beyond our professional accomplishments. It extends far beyond accolades. Um, Muhammad Ali is a champion for civil rights. He's a champion in the fight against injustice. He's a champion for utilizing whatever tools he has to make the world a better place and forever stand for the true definition of greatness. Ali's a giant. There's no way the fighters can match him. He'll die for this shit, he'll die. I'm not gonna die for that. That's real talk. Ali's a savage, he's an animal. He's a different breed of person. It's not like us. I am the greatest. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal in rags and deedy of a muscular punch that's incredible as speed. The mystic world was dull and weary, but the champ like this thing had to be grim. I'll be champ of the world in 64. When I say three, they go in the third. So don't bet against me. I'm a man of my word. If Cassius says a cow can lay an egg, don't ask how. Reach that skillet. He is the greatest.
Good evening, everyone. It's a hard time, and everyone's feeling it in different ways. And I know a lot of folks are reluctant to tune into a political convention right now or to politics in general. Believe me, I get that. But I am here tonight because I love this country with all my heart. And it pains me to see so many people hurting. I've met so many of you. I've heard your stories. And through you, I have seen this country's promise. And thanks to so many who came before me, thanks to their toil and sweat and blood, I've been able to live that promise myself. That's the story of America. All those folks who sacrificed and overcame so much in their own times because they wanted something more, something better for their kids. There's a lot of beauty in that story. There's a lot of pain in it too. A lot of struggle and injustice and work left to do. And who we choose as our president in this election will determine whether or not we honor that struggle and chip away at that injustice and keep alive the very possibility of finishing that work. I am one of a handful of people living today who have seen firsthand the immense weight and awesome power of the presidency. And let me once again tell you this, the job is hard. It requires clear-headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass, and an ability to listen, and an abiding belief that each of the 330 million lives in this country has meaning and worth. A president's words have the power to move markets. They can start wars or broker peace. They can summon our better angels or awaken our worst instincts. You simply cannot fake your way through this job. As I've said before, being president doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. Well, a presidential election can reveal who we are, too. And four years ago, too many people chose to believe that their votes didn't matter. Maybe they were fed up. Maybe they thought the outcome wouldn't be close. Maybe the barriers felt too steep, whatever the reason. In the end, those choices sent someone to the Oval Office who lost the national popular vote by nearly three million votes. In one of the states that determined the outcome, the winning margin averaged out to just two votes per precinct. Two votes. And we've all been living with the consequences. When my husband left office with Joe Biden at his side, we had a record-breaking stretch of job creation. We'd secured the right to health care for 20 million people. We were respected around the world, rallying our allies to confront climate change. And our leaders had worked hand in hand with scientists to help prevent an Ebola outbreak from becoming a global pandemic. Four years later, 
The state of this nation is very different. More than 150,000 people have died and our economy is in shambles because of a virus that this president downplayed for too long. It has left millions of people jobless. Too many have lost their health care. Too many are struggling to take care of basic necessities like food and rent. Too many communities have been left in the lurch to grapple with whether and how to open our schools safely. Internationally, we've turned our back, not just on agreements forged by my husband, but on alliances championed by presidents like Reagan and Eisenhower. And here at home, as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a never-ending list of innocent people of color continue to be murdered, stating the simple fact that a black life matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. Because whenever we look to this White House for some leadership or consolation or any semblance of steadiness, what we get instead is chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy. Empathy, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. The ability to walk in someone else's shoes. The recognition that someone else's experience has value too. Most of us practice this without a second thought. If we see someone suffering or struggling, we don't stand in judgment, we reach out. Because there, but for the grace of God, go I. It is not a hard concept to grasp. It's what we teach our children and like so many of you, Barack and I have tried our best to instill in our girls a strong moral foundation to carry forward the values that our parents and grandparents poured into us. But right now, kids in this country are seeing what happens when we stop requiring empathy of one another. They're looking around wondering if we've been lying to them this whole time about who we are and what we truly value. They see people shouting in grocery stores, unwilling to wear a mask to keep us all safe. They see people calling the police on folks minding their own business just because of the color of their skin. They see an entitlement that says only certain people belong here. That greed is good and winning is everything because as long as you come out on top, it doesn't matter what happens to everyone else. And they see what happens when that lack of empathy is ginned up into outright disdain. They see our leaders labeling fellow citizens enemies of the state while emboldening torch-bearing white supremacists. They watch in horror as children are torn from their families and thrown into cages and pepper spray and rubber bullets are used on peaceful protesters for a photo op. Sadly, this is the America that is on display for the next generation. A nation that's underperforming not simply on matters of policy, but on matters of character. And that's not just disappointing, it's downright infuriating 
because I know the goodness and the grace that is out there in households and neighborhoods all across this nation. And I know that regardless of our race, age, religion, or politics, when we close out the noise and the fear and truly open our hearts, we know that what's going on in this country is just not right. This is not who we want to be. So what do we do now? What's our strategy? Over the past four years, a lot of people have asked me, when others are going so low, does going high still really work? My answer, going high is the only thing that works. Because when we go low, when we use those same tactics of degrading and dehumanizing others, we just become part of the ugly noise that's drowning out everything else. We degrade ourselves. We degrade the very causes for which we fight. But let's be clear. Going high does not mean putting on a smile and saying nice things when confronted by viciousness and cruelty. Going high means taking the harder path. It means scraping and clawing our way to that mountaintop. Going high means standing fierce against hatred while remembering that we are one nation under God. And if we want to survive, we've got to find a way to live together and work together across our differences. And going high means unlocking the shackles of lies and mistrust with the only thing that can truly set us free, the cold hard truth. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Now, I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided, and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic Convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling. You know I hate politics. But you also know that I care about this nation. You know how much I care about all of our children. So if you take one thing from my words tonight, it is this. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. If we have any hope of ending this chaos, we have got to vote for Joe Biden like our lives depend on it. I know Joe. He is a profoundly decent man guided by faith. He was a terrific vice president. He knows what it takes to rescue an economy, beat back a pandemic, and lead our country. And he listens. He will tell the truth and trust science. He will make smart plans and manage a good team. 
and he will govern as someone who's lived a life that the rest of us can recognize. When he was a kid, Joe's father lost his job. When he was a young senator, Joe lost his wife and his baby daughter. And when he was vice president, he lost his beloved son. So Joe knows the anguish of sitting at a table with an empty chair, which is why he gives his time so freely to grieving parents. Joe knows what it's like to struggle, which is why he gives his personal phone number to kids overcoming a stutter of their own. His life is a testament to getting back up. And he is going to channel that same grit and passion to pick us all up, to help us heal and guide us forward. Now, Joe is not perfect, and he'd be the first to tell you that. But there is no perfect candidate, no perfect president. And his ability to learn and grow we find in that the kind of humility and maturity that so many of us yearn for right now. Because Joe Biden has served this nation his entire life without ever losing sight of who he is. But more than that, he has never lost sight of who we are, all of us. Joe Biden wants all of our kids to go to a good school, see a doctor when they're sick, live on a healthy planet. And he's got plans to make all of that happen. Joe Biden wants all of our kids, no matter what they look like, to be able to walk out the door without worrying about being harassed or arrested or killed. He wants all of our kids to be able to go to a movie or a math class without being afraid of getting shot. He wants all our kids to grow up with leaders who won't just serve themselves and their wealthy peers, but will provide a safety net for people facing hard times. And if we want a chance to pursue any of these goals, any of these most basic requirements for a functioning society, we have to vote for Joe Biden in numbers that cannot be ignored. Because right now, folks who know they cannot win fair and square at the ballot box are doing everything they can to stop us from voting. They're closing down polling places in minority neighborhoods. They're purging voter rolls. They're sending people out to intimidate voters, and they're lying about the security of our ballots. These tactics are not new. But... This is not the time to withhold our votes in protest or play games with candidates who have no chance of winning. We have got to vote like we did in 2008 and 2012. We've got to show up with the same level of passion and hope for Joe Biden. We've got to vote early, in person if we can. We've got to request our mail-in ballots right now, tonight, and send them back immediately and follow up to make sure they're received and then make sure our friends and families do the same. We have got to grab our comfortable shoes, put on our masks, pack a brown bag, dinner, and maybe breakfast too, because we've got to be willing to stand in line all night if we have to. Look, we have already sacrificed so much this year 
So many of you are already going that extra mile. Even when you're exhausted, you're mustering up unimaginable courage to put on those scrubs and give our loved ones a fighting chance. Even when you're anxious, you're delivering those packages, stocking those shelves, and doing all that essential work so that all of us can keep moving forward. Even when it all feels so overwhelming, working parents are somehow piecing it all together without childcare. Teachers are getting creative so that our kids can still learn and grow. Our young people are desperately fighting to pursue their dreams. And when the horrors of systemic racism shook our country and our consciences, millions of Americans of every age, every background rose up to march for each other, crying out for justice and progress. This is who we still are, compassionate, resilient, decent people whose fortunes are bound up with one another. And it is well past time for our leaders to once again reflect our truth. So it is up to us to add our voices and our votes to the course of history, echoing heroes like John Lewis who said, when you see something that is not right, you must say something, you must do something. That is the truest form of empathy. Not just feeling, but doing. Not just for ourselves or our kids, but for everyone, for all our kids. And if we wanna keep the possibility of progress alive in our time, if we wanna be able to look our children in the eye after this election, we have got to reassert our place in American history and we have got to do everything we can to elect my friend Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. Thank you all. God bless.
Susan Sarandon, not just for the anointing and the words she has just spoken, but because she has been so much in the lives of people who need the human heart and the human spirit to be in the midst of their struggle to better themselves. I'd like to thank Chris Rock for bringing humor into the moment. And I'd like to also thank all of you who are here this evening, my very good friends and very close friends uh, who have turned out to be in support, and all the rest of you whom I don't know intimately but have felt your presence in my life because I've seen your art, I've seen your work, I've seen your poetry, and I've been inspired by much. So thank you for all this, and uh, I will now get on with my remarks for this evening. America has come a long way since Hollywood in 1915 gave the world the film Birth of a Nation. By all measure, this cinematic work was considered the greatest film ever made. The power of moving pictures to impact on human behavior was never more powerfully evidenced than when, after the release of this film, American citizens went on a murderous rampage. Races were set one against the other. Fire and violence erupted. Baseball bats and billy clubs bashed heads. Blood flowed in streets of our cities, and lives were lost. The film also gained the distinction of being the first film ever screened at the White House. The then-presiding president, Woodrow Wilson, openly praised the film, and with the power of this presidential anointing, validated the film's brutality and its grossly distorted view of history. This, too, further inflamed the nation's racial divide. In 1935, at the age of eight, sitting in a Harlem theater, I watched in awe and wonder the incredible feats of a white superhero, Tarzan of the Apes. Tarzan was a sight to see. This porcelain Adonis, this white liberator who could speak no language, swinging from tree to tree, saving Africa from the tragedy of destruction by a black indigenous population of inept, ignorant, void of any skills population, governed by ancient superstitions with no heart for Christian charity. Through this film, the virus of racial inferiority 
of never wanting to be identified with anything African swept into the psyche of its youthful observers. And for the years that followed, Hollywood brought abundant opportunity for black children in their Harlem theaters to cheer Tarzan and boo Africans. Native American, our Indian brothers and sisters, feared no better. And at the moment, Arabs ain't looking so good. But these encounters set other things in motion. It was an early stimulus to the beginning of my rebellion. Rebellion against injustice and human distortion and hate. How fortunate for me that the performing arts became the catalyst that fueled my desire for social change. In its pursuit, I came upon fellow artists like the great actor and my hero, singer-humanist Paul Robeson, painter Charles White, dancer Catherine Dunham, historian's superior academic mind, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, social strategist and educator, Eleanor Roosevelt, writers Langston Hughes and Maya Angelou and James Baldwin. They all inspired me. They excited me, deeply influenced me, and they were also my moral compass. It was Robeson who said, as you heard in the film earlier, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. They are civilization's radical voice. This Robeson environment sounded like a desired place to be, and given the opportunity to dwell there, has never disappointed me. For my life of activism and a commitment to social change, the opposition has been fiercely punitive. Some who have controlled institutions of culture and commentary have at times used their power to not only distort truth, but to punish the truth seekers. With interventions like McCarthyism, and the blacklist, Hollywood, too, has sadly played its part in these tragic scenarios. And on occasion, I have been one of its targets. However, from the cultural environment that gave us all these, all the social drama, all those movies, Birth of a Nation, Tarzan of the Apes, Song of the South, to name but a few. Today's cultural harvest yields a sweeter fruit. Defiant ones, Schindler's List, Brokeback Mountain, 12 Years a Slave, and many more. And all of this happening at the dawning of technological creations that will give artists boundless regions of possibilities to give us deeper insights 
into human existence. How fortunate for me that I have lived long enough for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to have chosen to bestow this honor upon me. Tonight is no casual encounter for me. Along with the trophy of honor, there's another layer that gives this journey this kind of wonderful Hollywood ending. To be rewarded by my peers for my work in human rights and civil rights and for peace. Well, let me put it this way. It powerfully mutes the enemy's thunder. Approaching 88 years of age, how truly poetic that as I joyfully glow with my fellow honorees, we should have in our midst as one of our celebrators a man who did so much in his own life to redirect the ship of racial hatred in American culture. His efforts made the journey a bit easier. Ladies and gentlemen, I refer to my friend, my elderly friend, Sidney <laughs> Poitier. I thank the Academy and its Board of Governors for this honor, for this recognition. I really wish I could be around for the rest of this century to see what Hollywood does with the rest of the century. Maybe, just maybe, it could be civilization's game-changer. After all, Paul Robeson said, artists are the radical voice of civilization. Each and every one of you in this room, with your gift and your power and your skills, could perhaps change the way in which our global humanity mistrusts itself. Perhaps we, as artists and as visionaries, for what's better in the human heart and the human soul, could you influence citizens everywhere in the world to see the better side of who and what we are as a species? I thank each and every one of you for this honor. And to my fellow honorees, I could have had no 
better company than to have shared this evening with each of you. Thank you very much. I, I was talking with, with Shay a couple days ago, and one of the things we talked about was um, how we all wait in life for things to get easier. Think in your own life if you've waited for something to get easier. Oh, I just got to get through this, and then it'll be easy. I've just got to get through preseason, and then it'll be okay. I've just got to get through my junior year of high school, and then the classes are going to get easier. Or I've just got to get to my spring and my senior year of college, and it's going to be easier. It's what we do. We wait for stuff to get easier. It will never get easier. What happens is you handle hard better. That's what happens. Most people think that it, it's going to get easier. Life is going to get easier. Basketball is going to get easier. School is going to get easier. It never gets easier. What happens is you become someone that handles hard stuff better. So that's a mental shift that has to occur in each of your brains. It has to. Because if you go around waiting for stuff to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. And then what happens? Oh, it's so hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, this, I don't know, when, it, when is it going to be easy for me? Oh, it's easy for other people. It's not. It's hard. And the second we see you handling stuff, handling hard better, what are we going to do? We're going to make it harder. We're going to make it harder. Because we're preparing for you for when you leave here. Not just basketball and life. And if you think life, when you leave college, is going to be all of a sudden get easy because you graduated and you got a degree, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. So make yourself a person that handles hard well. Not someone that's waiting for the easy. Because if you have a meaningful pursuit in life, it will never be easy. If you're trying to win a championship, if you're trying to have a family, ask your parents. Do you think it was ever easy for them to raise kids? Karen, is it easy? It's not. Any meaningful pursuit in life, if you want to be successful at it, it goes, it goes to the people that handle hard well. Those are the people that get the stuff they want. People that wait around for easy, you probably see them at the bus stop. They're waiting for easy, the easy bus to come around. Easy bus never comes around. You've got to handle hard. Okay, so don't get discouraged through this time. If it's hard, don't get discouraged. It's supposed to be. And don't wait for it to be easy. Oh, I just got to get through the summer. And then it'll all of a sudden get easy in the fall. No, it won't. It won't. It won't get easy in the fall. So make yourself someone that handles hard well. And then whatever comes at you, you're going to be great. You're going to be great, okay? In a class all by itself. It is the most unique sound ever created, my jazz friends. The Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad. Celebrating those that could not get a job in this country. Black people. You're listening to a four-hour special. Black history. America's history. So continue to kick back, relax, and enjoy this wonderful kind program. Welcome to Pilgrims And to the Buffaloes Who once ruled a plane Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain 
looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline And a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills Have been killed Sent away in America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul Lord knows from winter in America The Constitution A noble piece of paper Society struggled but they died in vain And now democracy is a ragtime on the corner Hoping for some rain It look like either hoping, hoping for some rain And I see the robins perched in barren treetops Watching last ditch races marching across the floor But just like the peace sign that vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America And all of the hillers Have been killed Or betrayed Yeah, but the people know The people know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America Nobody knows what to say Save your soul From winter in America
And now it's winter Winter in America And all of the hillers Done been killed Sit away Yeah, the people know The people know it's winter in America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows, nobody knows This video is sponsored by Skillshare, and this is George Washington Carver, one of the most famous food and agricultural scientists of all time, and certainly the most famous from the American South, where I live. He was born enslaved, and when he died, he was hailed as one of the greatest scientists of all time. Both of those bookends on his life were the doing of white elites who sought to exploit Carver toward their own ends. When I was in elementary school, I think I learned that George Washington Carver invented peanut butter and single-handedly saved Southern agriculture from the environmental, social, and economic degradation of cotton farming. None of that is true. White journalists, politicians, and business magnates absurdly inflated Carver's scientific achievements during his lifetime, which sounds kind of benevolent, but really it was the worst kind of tokenism in service of a white supremacist agenda. Then, in the decades after Carver's life, white historians seem to take a little too much pleasure in debunking the myth of Carver's achievements. It is true that Carver was probably not a great food and agricultural scientist, but he was a great man and his legacy matters, especially to us Americans, or really anyone who grows things or eats. George Washington Carver was born in rural Missouri sometime in the early 1860s, we don't know for sure. This is the house of Moses Carver, the man who enslaved George. And here's the first place in the story where things get weird. When Carver was a newborn baby, he, his mother, and his sister were stolen. Some guys just came in the night and abducted them and took them to Kentucky and sold them as slaves again, just to make a buck. Moses Carver went after them, but he was only able to recover baby George and not his mother. So now, Moses Carver and his wife Susan had George, his older brother James, and no one to raise them, so they raised them. After emancipation, this white, formerly slave-owning couple raised George Washington Carver as their own child. This afforded Carver a very different kind of childhood than those experienced by most of his black contemporaries in the South. Even still, when it was time to attend actual school, the closest one that accepted black students was eight miles away. That's very far in the pre-automobile era. Carver walked there by himself on foot. He was like 12 years old, and when he got there, it was late. The school was closed, so he slept in a barn. The barn turned out to be owned by a childless black couple who discovered the boy and took him in permanently. That story illustrates both how incredibly dedicated Carver was to his own intellectual curiosity, and at the same time how lucky he was, notwithstanding the incredible misfortune of being born who he was, when and where he was. 
through his life, both that dedication and that luck would hold. He was accepted to a college in Kansas, and when he showed up, they said, oh wait, we didn't know you were black, you can't come here. So he tried farming and rapidly turned his little homestead plot in Kansas into a botanical garden. Fruit trees, vegetables, landscaping plants, these are all paintings that he later made. He got a loan to go to a liberal arts college up north in Iowa, and when his art instructor there saw these paintings of his, she said, hey, maybe you should go study botany. George Washington Carver became the first black student at Iowa State Agricultural College, now known as Iowa State University, and then he became its first black faculty member. In 1896, Carver was called upon by this guy, Booker T. Washington, easily the most prominent African-American leader of his age. Also born into slavery, Washington founded the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, now Tuskegee University, a historically black college. Washington recruited Carver to head up the agriculture department at Tuskegee, and Tuskegee would be his base for the rest of his life. This is Carver in his real lab at Tuskegee, though of course this footage is from much later, 1937. But back around when he accepted this position, Carver wrote to Washington that agricultural education is, quote, the key to unlock the golden door of freedom to our people, though he would soon find that his students saw things differently. Many saw education as a means of escaping the farm, and here it is essential to understand how terrible it was to be a black farmer in the American South around the turn of the 20th century, not that long ago. The systems of tenant farming and sharecropping were virtually slavery under a different name. White people still owned all the land, and they allowed black people to farm it in exchange for taking much or most of the crop. But wait, that's not all. Farmers in this part of the country were mostly growing cotton, not so much food to eat. They would buy a lot of their food and supplies from a store, usually on credit. This store was often owned by the white landlord, and because monocropping cotton had horribly depleted the southern soil, crops often failed, and sharecroppers wouldn't be able to pay back their debts to the store, thus basically rendering them indentured servants to their landlords. If this wasn't slavery, it was serfdom. The way out of this for so many African Americans was to get off the land, to get factory jobs in cities and up north, to get educated and start a business. George Washington Carver's great vision was to give black farmers ways to improve their lives on the land. How? Through a concept that was way ahead of its time, sustainability. Carver tried to encourage and empower black farmers to ditch cotton for food crops like sweet potatoes and these peanuts. This is a peanut field. Cotton depleted the soil of nitrogen. Peanuts restored nitrogen to the soil. And you could eat them, a great protein and fat source. Carver said, hey, if you can eat more of your crop, that's less debt that you have to go into at the store to buy food. And instead of going into debt at the store buying artificial fertilizer, let me teach you about composting. Carver's chief published legacy are these bulletins aimed at black southern farmers, the most famous of which is this one from 1917 that included 105 recipes for peanuts. Now, historians are unanimous about what I'm about to say. Southern peanut farming was already on a big upswing before Carver ever began his work. And peanut butter and peanut oil and all these things that people attribute to Carver had long since been invented previously by other people. Few, if any, of his novel ideas for agricultural products were ever implemented by anyone. He left no notes from his lab, no formulas, very little that would have been regarded as serious scholarship even then. But that was not his gift. He had the gift of the gab. 
Now I'm gonna play you a little bit of George Washington Carver's actual speaking voice and get ready for it because reportedly his voice shocked just about everybody he ever met in his whole life. The uh, chief purpose of scientific training is to find truth. And whenever you find truth, you find the science. Ye shall know truth, and the truth shall make you free. So yeah, what was up with that? Well, the historian Lyndon McMurray speculates that his vocal cord development was impaired by various ailments that he had as a child. He was sickly, and even as an adult, he was hunched, he shuffled when he walked. It was that guy with that voice whom a peanut industry group sent to talk to the U.S. Congress in 1921. He was there to testify before the House Ways and Means Committee in favor of a bill that would place tariffs on imported peanuts, thus bolstering American peanut farmers. Now, mind you, this is right smack smack dab in the Jim Crow era. He starts his testimony by pulling out all these interesting peanut-based snacks that he has devised, and a congressman on the committee makes a racist joke. The congressman says, do you want a watermelon to go along with that? The idea that black people all love watermelon was a widespread racist stereotype of the time. And that was a northern congressman, by the way, John Q. Tilson of Connecticut. As we can see in the transcript, Carver doesn't let this racist joke throw him. He just says, of course, if you want a dessert, watermelon comes in very well, but you know, we can get along pretty well without dessert. The recent war has taught us that. He's talking about sugar rationing during World War I. And then he proceeds to just dazzle this committee, talking about how peanuts and sweet potatoes together form this virtually complete diet, and how we have just barely tapped the potential of these crops that can save the southern soil. They were... George Washington Carver became a celebrity almost overnight. Journalists hungry for a story wrote ridiculously unsourced pieces saying that he was solely responsible for the rise of peanut farming, and he was this chemistry wizard and all kinds of stuff that wasn't true. Some historians have noted that Carver did little to correct the record as his legend grew. But we know from comments that Carver made to a student of his named John Sutton that he felt a lot of pressure to keep up the legend since the Tuskegee Institute was using it as fodder for fundraising. White elites like Henry Ford struck up friendships with Carver, people who had an interest in maintaining America's racist social order. In Carver, they had found a very convenient friend. Sure, he wanted to improve the conditions of black people, but through farming, white elites liked the idea of keeping black people on the farm, and they liked that Carver's empowerment rhetoric was about self-help, not tearing down systems of oppression. Many historians have also noted that Carver's unimposing physical presence and high voice made him very unthreatening to easily threatened white people. And Carver himself was accommodationist on matters of racist public policy and social customs. There are documented instances of Carver dining with white people and voluntarily getting up and taking his meal by himself in another room. His boss, Booker T. Washington, had sparked a national scandal in 1901 by simply sitting down to a meal with President Theodore Roosevelt, and Carver said that he didn't want to ever cause such a fuss himself. He didn't want to rock the boat, he just wanted to talk about agriculture and his philosophy of self-improvement and his very devout Christianity. 
I'm going to quote now from a 1976 journal article by the historian Barry McIntosh. Just a heads up, McIntosh uses the word black as a noun rather than an adjective. Using it as a noun is generally regarded nowadays as pretty offensive because it reduces a human being and all of their complexities to this one aspect of who they are. Nonetheless, this use of the word as a noun was really common in language at the time, so here we go. The Carver myth was proclaimed and accepted most widely in white society. By lavishing praise on a token black, they could deny or atone for prejudice against blacks as a class. The presence of a black achiever in the South could serve as testimony that the Southern social order was not oppressive to blacks per se, and, by extension, that those who failed to achieve had themselves to blame. Now, implicit in Macintosh's probably accurate observation there is the assumption that Carver was without merit as a scientist, that he was all show. Let me leave you with a slightly contrasting view on that subject. This is from the historian Linda McMurray, who writes in her book, if Carver had been white, he probably would have made significant contributions in mycology or hybridization and died in obscurity. Because he was black, he died famous without making any significant scientific advances. In other words, his identity diverted him from the laboratory to the spotlight. But let's think about what he did there. He got vast numbers of people to think for maybe the first time about sustainable farming and living and eating in harmony with nature. Surely that accomplishment is equal to any he could have made in a laboratory. Good afternoon, everybody. Friday. Okay, so we are rounding out another big week here at the White House and a lot of great news for the American people. The president traveled to Arizona, underscoring how his economic plan continues to create jobs, revitalize American manufacturing, strengthen our supply chains, and give families more breathing room. For the first time in almost two years, the national average gas price is lower than its level was one year ago. Senator Warnock will continue representing the people of Georgia. He ran on the president's message, we must strengthen Social Security and Medicare, lower prescription drug costs, and protect a woman's right to make her health care decision. The president announced historic relief to protect the hard-earned pensions of hundreds of thousands of union workers and retirees thanks to the American Rescue Plan. And yesterday, President Biden kept his promise to bring Brittany Griner home and reiterated his commitment to securing Paul Whelan's release. The president will never give up. As Russia continues to wage its brutal war against people of Ukraine, today the Biden-Harris administration is announcing a new $275 million security assistance package to help Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression. This package will provide Ukraine with new capabilities to boost its, to boost its air defenses and counter the threats Ukraine is facing from Iranian UAVs, which Russia is using to attack Ukraine's critical infrastructure and kill Ukrainian civilians. Today's announcement also includes critical equipment that Ukraine is using so effectively to defend itself on the battlefield, such as more ammunition for HIMARS and Ukraine's artillery. 
And now, our favorite thing is the week ahead. So just giving you a quick look, actually it's more than a quick look. We have a lot to share for next week. On Monday, the President and First Lady will travel to Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Arlington, Virginia to participate in a United States Marine Corps Reserve Toys for Tots event. They will join spouses of senior Department of Defense and, leadership, and service leadership and local military children in sorting donated toys for distribution to families in need ahead of the holidays. This engagement is part of the, the First Lady's Joining Forces initiative to support those who serve, including families of service members and veterans, caregivers and survivors, and will also have National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan right here in the press briefing room on Monday to preview the African Leaders Summit. On Tuesday, the President will host a ceremony on the South Lawn to sign the Respect for Marriage Act, accompanied by members of Congress, members of his cabinet, and stakeholders. On Wednesday, the President looks forward to hosting the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. This summit will underscore the value the United States places on our collaboration with Africa on the most pressing global challenges and opportunities, as well as on the Biden administration's commitment to revitalizing global partnerships and alliances. We expect to engage a wide range of African and U.S. stakeholders to illustrate the breadth and the depth of American partnerships with African governments, businesses, civil, civil society, and citizens, partnerships based on dialogue that harness the, creative, the creativity of the people, of our peoples. In the morning, the President will deliver remarks at the U.S.-Africa Business Forum. Later in the day, he will host a small group multilateral meeting with leaders. In the evening, the President will host the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit dinner in the East Room. The President will also observe the 10th anniversary since the tragic Sandy Hook shooting. We will have more details on that next week. On Thursday, the President will continue his participation in the Africa's Leaders Summit. He will participate in the leaders' session, session on partnering on the Africa Union's Agenda 2063, the continent's strategic framework for inclusive and sustainable development based on pan-Africa Africa unity, self-determination, freedom, progress, collective prosperity. Afterwards, he will participate in a family photo with the leaders. In the afternoon, the President will participate in the leaders' session on promoting food security and food systems resilience. And then on Friday, the President will head to Wilmington. He will remain there over the weekend. With that, it's all yours.
Piano class, all by itself, my jazz friends. You're listening to the Mighty P Podcast with the original Sinbad. We're celebrating Black History Month right here in front of you, and you're getting a chance to listen with both of your ear holes. Hope you're celebrating and enjoying this wonderful program. Four hours of greatness, celebrating those who back this country was built on. We're talking about black people. Celebrating those that fought only for their God-given right, the right to live in peace with dignity and respect. We're talking about black people. Celebrating those that fought for the right to go to school, the right to get married, the right to just have a family. We're talking about black people. And of course, you're listening to four hours of a beautiful program we simply call a special meeting of the mind, Black History. This is America's history. So kick back, relax, and continue to enjoy this one-of-a-kind program. In 2004, then-Illinois Senate candidate Barack Obama delivered the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. He spoke about his personal background and about the Democratic Party. Here is that speech in its entirety. so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dick Durbin. You make us all proud. On behalf of the great state of Illinois, crossroads of a nation, land of Lincoln, let me express my deepest gratitude for the privilege of addressing this convention. Tonight is a particular honor for me because, let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. He grew up herding goats, went to school in a tin roof shack. His father, my grandfather, was a cook, a domestic servant to the British. But my grandfather had larger dreams for his son. Through hard work and perseverance, my father got a scholarship to study in a magical place, America, that shone as a beacon of freedom and opportunity to so many who had come before. While studying here, my father met my mother. She was born in a town on the other side of the world, in Kansas. Her father worked on oil rigs and farms through most of the Depression. The day after Pearl Harbor, my grandfather signed up for duty, joined Patton's army, marched across Europe. Back home, my grandmother raised a baby and went to work on a bomber assembly line. After the war, they studied on the GI Bill, bought a house through FHA, and later moved west, all the way to Hawaii, in search of opportunity. And they, too, had big dreams for their daughter. A common dream born of two continents, 
My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. They would give me an African name, Barack, or Blessed, believing that in a tolerant America, your name is no barrier to success. They imagined, they imagined me going to the best schools in the land, even though they weren't rich, because in a generous America, you don't have to be rich to achieve your potential. They're both passed away now. And yet I know that on this night, they look down on me with great pride. They stand here, and I stand here today, grateful for the diversity of my heritage, aware that my parents' dreams live on in my two precious daughters. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. Tonight, we gather to affirm the greatness of our nation, not because of the height of our skyscrapers or the power of our military or the size of our economy. Our pride is based on a very simple premise, summed up in a declaration made over 200 years ago. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. A faith, a faith in simple dreams, an insistence on small miracles, that we can tuck in our children at night and know that they are fed and clothed and safe from harm. That we can say what we think, write what we think, without hearing a sudden knock on the door. That we can have an idea and start our own business without paying a bribe. That we can participate in the political process without fear of retribution, and that our votes will be counted, at least most of the time. This year, in this election, we are called to reaffirm our values and our commitments, to hold them against a hard reality, and see how we're measuring up to the legacy of our forebears and the promise of future generations. And fellow Americans, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, I say to you tonight, we have more work to do. More work to do for the workers I met in Galesburg, Illinois who are losing their union jobs at the Maytag plant that's moving to Mexico, and now are having to compete with their own children for jobs that pay seven bucks an hour. More to do for the father that I met who was losing his job and choking back the tears wondering how he would pay $4,500 a month for the drugs his son needs without the health benefits that he counted on. More to do for the young woman in East St. Louis and thousands more like her who has the grades, has the drive, has the will, but doesn't have the money to go to college. Now, don't get me wrong, the people I meet in small towns and big cities and diners and office parks, they don't expect government to solve all their problems. They know they have to work hard to get ahead, and they want to. Go into the collar counties around Chicago, and people will tell you they don't want their tax money wasted by a welfare agency or by the Pentagon.
Go in. Go into any inner city neighborhood, and folks will tell you that government alone can't teach our kids to learn. They know that parents have to teach that children can't achieve unless we raise their expectations and turn off the television sets and eradicate the slander that says a black youth with a book is acting white. They know those things. People don't expect. People don't expect government to solve all their problems, but they sense deep in their bones that with just a slight change in priorities, we can make sure that every child in America has a decent shot at life, and that the doors of opportunity remain open to all. They know we can do better, and they want that choice. In this election, we offer that choice. Our party has chosen a man to lead us who embodies the best. This country has to offer, and that man is John Kerry. John Kerry understands the ideals of community, faith, and service because they've defined his life—from his heroic service to Vietnam, to his years as a prosecutor and lieutenant governor, through two decades in the United States Senate. He's devoted himself to this country. Again and again, we've seen him make tough choices when easier ones were available. His values and his record affirm what is best in us. John Kerry believes in an America where hard work is rewarded. So instead of offering tax breaks to companies shipping jobs overseas, he offers them to companies creating jobs here at home. John Kerry believes in an America. Where all Americans can afford the same health coverage our politicians in Washington have for themselves, John Kerry believes in energy independence, so we aren't held hostage to the profits of oil companies or the sabotage of foreign oil fields. John Kerry believes in the constitutional freedoms that have made our country the envy of the world, and he will never sacrifice our basic liberties nor use faith. As a wedge to divide us, and John Kerry believes that in a dangerous world, war must be an option sometimes, but it should never be the first option. You know, a while back, a while back, I met a young man named Seamus in a VFW hall in East Moline, Illinois. He was a good-looking kid, six-two, six-three, clear-eyed, with an easy smile. He told me he joined the Marines and was heading to Iraq the following week. And as I listened to ex him explain why he'd enlisted, the absolute faith he had in our country and its leaders, his devotion to duty and service, I thought this young man was all that any of us might ever hope for in a child. But then I asked myself, are we serving? Shameless, as well as he's serving us. I thought of the 900 men and women, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, friends and neighbors, who won't be returning to their own hometowns. I thought of the families I've met who were struggling to get by without a loved one's full income, or whose loved ones had returned with a limb missing, or nerves shattered, but still lacked long-term health benefits because they were reservists.
When we send our young men and women into harm's way, we have a solemn obligation not to fudge the numbers or shade the truth about why they are going, to care for their families while they're gone, to tend to the soldiers upon their return, and to never, ever go to war without enough troops to win the war, secure the peace, and earn the respect of the world. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. We have real enemies in the world. These enemies must be found, they must be pursued, and they must be defeated. John Kerry knows this. And just as Lieutenant Kerry did not hesitate to risk his life to protect the men who served with him in Vietnam, President Kerry will not hesitate one moment to use our military might to keep America safe and secure. John Kerry believes in America, and he knows that it's not enough for just some of us to prosper. For alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga, a belief that we're all connected as one people. If there's a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab-American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief it is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, the spin masters, the negative ad peddlers who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and their patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. In the end, in the end, in the end, that's what this election is about. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope?
John Kerry calls on us to hope. John Edwards calls on us to hope. I'm not talking about blind optimism here, the almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think about it, or health care crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. Of difficulty, hope in the face of uncertainty, the audacity of hope. In the end, that is God's greatest gift to us, the bedrock of this nation, a belief in things not seen, a belief that there are better days ahead. I believe that we can give our middle class relief and provide working families with a road to opportunity. I believe we can provide jobs to the jobless, homes to the homeless, and reclaim young people in cities across America from violence and despair. I believe that we have a righteous wind at our backs, and that as we stand on the crossroads of history, we can make the right choices and meet the challenges that face us. America, tonight, if you feel the same energy that I do, if you feel the same urgency that I do, if you feel the same passion that I do, if you feel the same hopefulness that I do, if we do what we must do, then I have no doubt that all across the country, from Florida to Oregon, from Washington to Maine, the people will rise up in November and John Kerry will be sworn in as president and John Edwards will be sworn in as vice president and this country will reclaim its promise and out of this long political darkness, a brighter day will come. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. Like always, my jazz friends, the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad. I want to thank you so much for listening. I want to thank you so much for lending me a ear. Matter of fact, both of your ears. Like always, I enjoy myself hanging out with you. I most really enjoyed bringing you this program. Black history has been said to be said all over the world and right here at the Mighty P. Black history is America's history. It's up to you to believe that and keep moving forward. Work hard, dream big, and never give up. You too can make it happen. Again, thank you so much for listening. I enjoyed hanging out with you.
But she played enough dudes And she had a beat She had a beat One little back One kiss Of the bird Twice. Try to get the people. You got it twice. Try to get the 